Today's scripture reading is from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Please read with me the verses in bold. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, everybody. It is a beautiful October Sunday in Sacramento. And uh, October, in the small town in Michigan where I grew up, and particularly the night before Halloween, are a very vivid memory for me. Um, on that night, the night before Halloween, uh, this small one-stoplight town um, turned into a crazy place. Gangs of junior high and high school kids roamed the streets, egging cars and houses, and clashing in egg-throwing battles with one another. The egg wars in Grass Lake, the name of this little town was Grass Lake, and the egg wars became so intense at one point that the local grocery store started asking for an ID to buy eggs in the month of October. You had to be 21 to buy eggs. And it was serious. Uh, it was, I mean, it was a serious problem, and yet, uh, part of the lore of the Grass Lake Egg Wars was that this was actually just innocent fun, and the real troublemakers on the night before Halloween would go to Detroit. And Detroit was the big city an hour away, and at that time, in the mid-80s, Detroit, my motor city, was famous for... Um, for mayhem on the night before Halloween. Motor City was famous for dumpster fires and destruction of property and near riots on this night, by the night before Halloween. Everything was worse in the city. And I think that that's essentially, I don't know if this is the only reason, but I, essentially that was a mentality that I unknowingly grow, grew up with, this sort of idea that everything is worse in the city. Years later, um, I spent a better part of two years of college as a youth ministry intern at a, boy, at a boys and girls club in inner city Minneapolis. And it was a wonderful time, and I, I grew intensely, but if I'm honest, I'd have to say that I spent most of that time in the inner city of Minneapolis vacillating between two extremes, either this idea uh, that some people have called white savior complex, like these people need me, I'm their only hope, um, or uh, vacillating into a deeply 
held fear for my own safety because this is where drugs were sold and this is where human trafficking happened. Gang violence happens in the city because my small town uh, mentality was that everything was worse in the city. It wasn't until a few years later that I uh, was doing ministry in California, was exposed to initially just a sermon, a sermon by a guy named Tim Keller on, the, uh, on a passage in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. And I began to grow a different vision for what a city was and what a city could be. In Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 5, God says to Israel, his people who are exiled in a city, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now according to to Tim Keller and other urban church planters. Uh, there's another guy who's been very influential on me. His name is Stephen Um, and Stephen wrote a book called Why Cities Matter. But uh, according to some of these thinkers, uh, cities are more important than they ever have been before. More people live in cities now than, than ever have in the history of humanity. Cities shape the world. What happens in cities gets packaged and shipped out throughout the rest of the world, not just the products that are made in urban centers, but uh, the education that happens here at the universities, the cultural and economic forces that uh, are formed and shaped in cities. Cities produce art and political policy and research and technological innovation, and that um, is one of, this kind of thinking is one of the reasons why you're sitting in a church in the city that has intentionally tried to locate itself in the midst of a, of a university where we can have a relationship with ministries happening on the college campus and a teaching hospital where we can have an influence on families who are uh, doing their residencies and other training and close to the capital where decisions are being made. We were taken with this idea that cities are significant and influential and that reaching people in the city with the gospel was a mission that God had given us. According to Keller, the city is humanity intensified. So he says, uh, the city is a magnifying glass that can bring out the best or the worst in human nature. In fact, it does both. Uh, we are in a place that is magnifying human potential. And the Bible refers to cities in that same way. It refers to cities both as places of perversion and violence, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and places of refuge and peace. Whole chapters on cities being a place of safety and refuge. And God's city of Zion being a place to go. So there's this kind of tension in the scripture about cities, and I think it's uh, tension between the beauty and potential of a city for human flourishing and its ability to magnify and exacerbate depravity. And it's that tension that inhabits the book of Micah. In this minor prophet, Micah 1.1 tells us that Micah 
was, a, was from a small town called Moresheth. Moresheth's in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he prophesied in the time of Isaiah, who's maybe a much a higher profile uh, prophet than he is. Uh, but, uh, but Micah prophesied at a time just after God's people had been, uh, several generations after God's people had been divided into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. But unlike other minor minor prophets who zero in on one of those kingdoms and prophesy to a single king, Micah was less focused on confronting one kingdom or the other and more concerned with the great cities that existed in both kingdoms. According to Micah 1.1, this is the word of the Lord which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria is the capital city of Israel to the north, and Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom and the seat of the worship of Yahweh at the temple. Both of these cities have become, by Micah's thriving, centers of art and commerce and architecture and culture. It's about 700 B.C., And both, uh, in Micah's estimation, are cities that have been violating their covenant with God, with the God of Israel. Not only in their assimilation of pagan cultures and religions around them, but in their neglect and abuse and exploitation of the weak and the marginalized and the poor in their midst. Their miscare for others has been magnified in those cities. And the book of Micah promises that because of these violations, the Assyrian Empire, the world power, is coming, and the Babylonians are coming after them, and Samaria is going to fall, and Jerusalem is going to be ravished. In the first chapters of the book of Micah, we're particularly concerned, Micah is particularly concerned with indicting Israel's leaders, who he says have taken advantage of the opportunities that living in these powerful cities have given them, and they've taken advantage of those opportunities to become wealthy themselves through, through, uh, through ways that they've defrauded others, through their own theft and greed. He confronts Israel's prophets, the, those who were supposed to speak the word of God and speak truth to power. He says uh, that they've become corrupt. They're offering promises and blessings from God to anyone who is willing to pay them. Ultimately, both the leaders and the prophets end up, according to Micah, serving the privileged, while at best ignoring the poor in their midst, but more often utilizing and exploiting the poor and the working class in the process. This is the the perspective that Micah speaks from. He identifies or understands himself to be a part of that poor or working class. He came from a, a farming town called Morasheth, a little one-light town outside of the city. He speaks from the perspective of the farmers and the shepherds and the small-time landowners, and he's suspicious of the, the glitter and the glamour of the cities in spite of the fact that God has so clearly called him to these cities to speak to them and call them to repentance. And it shouldn't be lost on us that one of the most famous passages in Micah that normally only gets read at Christmas time is Micah 5.2. Not our passage this morning, but I'll read it anyway. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel. 
whose coming forth is of old from ancient of days. Micah's famous prophecy is that salvation for Israel, the Messiah himself, is not going to be produced by human ingenuity and all of the advancements of the great cities, but that the Messiah would emerge from amongst the poor in an out-of-the-way, nowhere town like Bethlehem. shouldn't be lost on us that Micah 1.1 says that Micah prophesied in Judah during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That means, for one thing, he had a pretty long career. This is like 53 years that he was a prophet in Judah. And it also means that he spent most of that 53 years banging his head against a wall while Jotham and Ahaz, the first two kings listed, ignored his warnings and enriched themselves and then looted the temple of its treasures to pay tributes to Assyria to keep uh, the Assyrian Empire at bay. You can read about that in 2 Kings. But 2 Kings 18 says that Hezekiah, this third king listed, actually got the message. It tells, uh, 2 Kings 18 tells the story of Hezekiah's repentance and his return to God and his faithfulness to stand with Yahweh against the Assyrian Empire. And it, as you read that, I, I wonder to myself, what was the turning point? You know, what was it? that made uh, Hezekiah change his mind when other kings didn't, and certainly I would say the Holy Spirit. I don't know exactly uh, when it happened, but the passage that we read this morning, Micah 6, 6 to 8, is the turning point in the book of Micah, and arguably one of the most important passages in the Minor Prophets. So it's conjecture, but you can almost hear Hezekiah, in this moment of conviction, responding to Micah's indictments with the words of verse 6, which we began with, okay, Micah, with what then shall I come before the Lord? Okay, so I hear you saying that I need to lead this city to seek restoration with God, so what will it take? What do we need to do to prove that we're serious? How do I prove my love to God? And immediately then he starts, or the, uh, the book starts making rhetorical suggestions. What should we do uh, to show our repentance and our, our love and our turning to the Lord? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings of uh, calves of a year old? The suggestion is uh, expensive public religious observance. Let's demonstrate with a, with a, showy, with, with a, with a showy sacrifice that we are turning. Is that what God wants? Verse 7 says, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? Even the suggestion reveals the fact that even as Hezekiah or whoever is speaking here uh, to Micah, in their attempt to return to the Lord, even their words reveal how completely enmeshed they are in, in the corruption and consumerism of their cities. They're, they're asking, how much is this going to cost? How big of a bribe should we pay to get God's affection? For a little while, one of the kids in our junior high youth group, once upon a time, was the son of one of the richest guys in town. And he was so excited that his son was spending time with a youth pastor 
he would try to put money in my hand when I would bring this kid home from youth group. He was always offering to let me take one of his fancy cars for a ride. Well, it didn't turn out well for either of us. His money wasn't enough to capture his son's heart or make him interested in Jesus. Something changed. Youth group wasn't fun anymore. We didn't see him much. And I put a big scratch in his hot rod. But the question that Micah asks is, how much oil do you need to grease God's palm? It almost literally says that. Should we come with 10,000 rivers of oil? Remember, this is how the prophets were operating in Judah at this time. It was a, it was a pay for blessing operation. If you read Micah 3.5, it says that the prophet said, they cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. The question is, what do we have to do? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Does, does Yahweh want human sacrifice like the pagan gods that surround us? Is that what this is about? What does the Lord require? That's the question. It actually asks it. And the answer is not a secret. Actually, Micah says that this is not something that is hard to find or some kind of concealed wisdom that can only be unlocked if you crack the Bible code or something. Micah says, he has told you. God has told you. Oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires. You might say, when? As early as God's first interactions with Moses in Deuteronomy 10 uh, God says, it, it says in Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and the statutes of the law, which are for your good. What does the Lord require? People ask Jesus pretty similar question, phrased a little bit different if you uh, want, if you want, they, they come and they say to Jesus, uh, what, Teacher, what's the great, what is the greatest commandment to the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the, first, the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that this is the summation of all of the law and the prophets, which includes Micah. Micah is actually being uh, asked or, or asking a rhetorical question that is very similar. What does the Lord require? Micah asks maybe Hezekiah and the people of Israel. Uh, and he answers the question like this. He says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So Jesus is asked the question and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Micah says it like this, do justice love kindness or love mercy. Uh, loving kindness, loving mercy. I, I, I learned it mercy. I think that's the NIV, and so I'm going to probably use those interchangeably because that's what's in my, in my memory. But I think loving mercy is Micah's description of a heart that loves its neighbor as itself. But doing justice is the description of the action or the, the lifestyle that flows out of that kind of love. What does... Loving your neighbor 
What does doing justice look like concretely? Well, the word translated justice there is a Hebrew word, mishpat. It, recur, it occurs like 200 times in the scripture. It's a very important concept. Sometimes it's translated upholding the cause or upholding righteousness or doing justice. But according to Tim Keller, again, uh, mishpat or, or doing justice is giving people what they're due. And he says that there's two sides to that. Uh, two sides to understanding giving people what they're due. On the one hand, he says, when people are doing something wrong and need to be stopped, to stop them and to, to, to detain them and to punish them is to do justice. Leviticus 24, 22 says, you shall have the same rule, and that's the word mishpat, you shall have the same mishpat for the sojourner for the native, for I am the Lord your God. You should have the same uh, law, the same punishment for the same crime, no matter who commits it. That's mishpat. That's doing justice. And yet on the other hand, doing justice also means to give to the oppressed and to the weak and to the vulnerable what they're due. Psalm 146.7 says that the one who makes the Lord his God executes justice, mishpat, for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets prisoners free. Mishpat, like I said, occurs 200 times in the Old Testament, and a majority of those times it appears, it also appears with reference to the care of widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor. Christian philosopher Nicholas Wolderstorff calls that the quartet of the vulnerable, that is a reoccurring quartet in the Old Testament, in the scriptures. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. These are the people who are most easily taken advantage of. These are the people who we find in particular concentration in the city. Places, where, places that will either magnify the ability for other humans to care for them or magnify uh, other humans' ability to oppress and exploit them. That's the nature of the city, which is probably why Micah describes loving your neighbor as yourself like this, because he is confronting his city-dwelling audience and saying to love people is to do justice. Nowadays, you can usually tell somebody's political persuasion by their first knee-jerk definition of justice, right? If they say, when they say justice and they're talking about being, a, being law and order, uh, punishing crime, that's one thing. But if they say justice and they're talking about income inequality, that's another thing. In our world, there's two sides of an aisle. But the scripture doesn't care about our political ca categories, Mishpat means both. Psalm 146 gives some examples of what that might look like. It says there, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. This God who is the creator, the powerful God, executes justice for the oppressed, verse 7 says. Gives food to the hungry, so... Doing justice looks like participating in ways of feeding the hungry. 
He says that he sets, the Lord sets prisoners free, and we can assume from context that this doesn't mean just everybody gets to go free, because some people are appropriately imprisoned. But working for the release of those who are falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, working in medicine, doing physical healing, doing human care. That's mishpat. That's doing justice. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. Probably uh, this refers to mental health and encouragement and counseling and care for others. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. This is the protection of immigrants and refugees, those without legal rights. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, the support of single-family homes and foster care and adoption. All of, these, all of these are ways that people following a God of justice can show forth his character to a watching world. And the last verse says, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The same punishment for the same crime no matter who commits it. So Micah says, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Micah says it like this, walk humbly with your God. And I have a hunch about why he describes loving God as walking humbly in the context of doing justice in the city. You see, What Micah implies through his prophecy and what Psalm 146 and other scriptures state more explicitly is that justice is one of the ways that God is known, that we uh, put God's signature on his people is that we become a people who are doing justice. It's one of the primary things that he's up to in the world. And Psalm 146 says that to love God is to love justice and to be doing these things in the world, to be introducing that God to a world that longs for justice and longs for things to be made right. But the big, a big part of the problem is that way too often uh, we find it a lot easier to be judgmental to, to, to major in the mishpat that it is, that is the same punishment for the same crime, no matter who commits it. That believers are only known for their judgment of other people's sin instead of their care for the poor. Known for their self-righteousness instead of doing justice, doing mishpat. Since it's interesting to observe that Psalm 140, in Psalm 146's description of doing justice, it includes, and we read, six different examples of giving the oppressed and the weak and the vulnerable their due, and only one example at the very end of law and order mishpat. That last line of Psalm 146 that we read this morning should give us some pause. It should be a humbling and cautioning line. But the way of the wicked he brings to the ruin. Because if doing justice means the same punishment for the same crime no matter who commits it, then we put ourselves in a crisis when we call out to God to punish evil. When we call out to God and we want evil to be punished and we want uh, him to stop oppression and, we, and uh, we ask him to punish evildoers and oppressors because when we're honest, we're a lot more like Jotham and Ahaz than we are like Hezekiah. More than we'd like to admit. We have benefited from evil that has 
other people. Convenience has been our priority even if it has exploited others. We've ignored the cause of the weak when it would cost us too much. And so I think that we should be very cautious and humble about crying out for justice because we have been unjust. And our crime deserves the same punishment as the crimes that we decry. And so how do we become a people that do justice? How do we cry out to, to a God of justice and ask for him to make his name known uh, with any kind of hope that that will not mean our own destruction? How can we cry out for justice with any kind of hope that he will indeed punish evil and yet show us mercy? We cry out to Jesus. Because this is exactly why he came. Look at Jesus' words in Luke uh, 4, 18 and 19. When he uh, came on the scene, it's his first public appearance in ministry. He's handed a scroll in the synagogue. It actually is the scroll of Isaiah, which I'll remind you is Micah's contemporary. He turns to Isaiah 61 and he reads these first two verses almost as if he's introducing his mission statement in the world the same way Stephen stood here and read the mission statement of crew, right? Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But what you won't catch if you don't know Isaiah 61 by heart is that Jesus leaves out the end of the second verse. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 actually says almost verbatim the same thing. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. And yet Jesus, when asked why he's here, when he stands up to proclaim his mission, he proclaims that he has come to bring the mishpat, the justice of God, the justice that we've longed for and called out for, the good news, the binding of the broken, freedom for the captive, and yet instead of bringing God's judgment, instead of bringing his vengeance on our sin, Jesus comes and receives that judgment himself. God's justice is shown forth for us at the cross. At this moment in history in which uh, God made sure that each of us would get what we were due that evil and sin would be punished, and for those who would put their faith in Christ, he would take that punishment for us so that God can uphold justice and be a God of mercy and care and freedom and salvation. And so this is the good news that we proclaim and that we, we think as we read the scriptures that uh, Micah foreknew that he was pointing towards, that if we would uh, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, he will provide a way. My friends, this is the way.